Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's Friday, December 1st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I'm here to plug my live presentation Wednesday December 6th, 6 p.m., the Village Underground in New York City. I'll be talking about what I saw, what I reported on my trip to Israel, what I've been reporting ever since. It'll be an interesting, though not funny, it'll be an interesting evening. We'll have guests. I invite you to come for a, uh, all proceeds will go to causes in Israel, people rebuilding their lives and their homes. That is what the $18 admission charge is for. Again, Wednesday, December 6th. 6 p.m. Village Underground. With that said, Ron DeSantis debated Gavin Newsom last night on Fox with the loser being forced to move to Ohio. It was as momentous as I thought it might be with Sean Hannity offering the carefully calibrated mediation of a bribed WWF referee who won. One governor alleged accurately that the other bans books and abortions. And unless you urinate on yourself while trying to communicate that phrase, you're going to have the much stronger argument in my book. But my book is not this book, a page of which Ron DeSantis displayed for the Fox viewers. I actually have something that I brought that some parents have objected to. So this is a book that's in some of the schools in California, Florida. This is not consistent with our standards called Gender Queer. I, it's, some of it's blacked out. You would not probably be able to put this on air. This is pornography. And then the Fox cameras, as if DeSantis were in the director's seat, dutifully cut away. Cut away from DeSantis holding a picture up to the camera so the camera could see it and then saying, you can't show this in all likelihood. Let me now describe the picture since this podcast is an audio medium. It's a three-panel cartoon, anime style, I would say, of a teenager clearly giving another teenager a, um, shall we say, a verbal assist, a, a thorough oral report, if you will. And the only reason we don't see the actual organ of interest is a pretty tiny black bar that the DeSantis team affixed to pictures, as they used to do when they anonymized people by putting a black bar over their eyes. Think of the ACDC album cover, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. Anyway, this whole thing is fascinating if you really break it down. DeSantis pulled the picture from his right breast pocket. Was he walking around with this all evening? Did his staff load him up with it in the green room? Did he feel silly or a little dangerous with the picture so close to his chest? Did he have a story in mind if it dropped out on the floor and we were left looking at it? Maybe a Secret Service guy stares him in the face. This picture of teenage boys filleting each other. Would he say, no, 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 it's okay. I put in the black bar. I would like the full oral history of this one, as it were. And then later, another visual. This is a map of San Francisco. There's a lot of plots on that. You may be asking, what is that plotting? Well, this is an app where they plot the human feces that are found on the streets of San Francisco. And you see how almost the whole thing is covered because that is what has happened in one of the previous greatest cities this country's ever had. Human feces is now a, a fact of life. Once again, this picture of a map with a lot of brown spots 
coming from DeSantis's right breast pocket. I wonder, did he have both pictures in there simultaneously? Or once oral sex was deployed, did Team DeSantis load him up with poop pick? If they were there at the same time, how did he differentiate? Did he go by thickness? Was there somewhere, maybe the other pocket, a third or fourth visual aid that he didn't have time to get to? Was it a wedding pic of Newsom with ex-wife Kimberly Guilfoyle? Or let's work this out. After a picture of feces and then of teenagers having oral sex, what's third in the triumvirate epitomizing the Sodom and Gomorrah state of decline of California? cannibalism, I guess. Oh, wait, that's mostly a Florida bath salts driven phenomenon. Either way, I think the candidate who was not running for president helped his electoral chances the most. And I think barring a very, very copious use of an overhead projector, maybe conducting his next debate from inside the Vegas sphere, I think that Ron DeSantis doesn't have many more paths to rising in the polls amongst his fellow Republicans. On the show today, from DeSantis to Santos, a reckoning for the Republican of limited rectitude. But first, many a political pundit has compared the inner workings of Washington, D.C. to a Shakespearean play. Few pundits have the chops to go beyond the analogy. My next guest, Elliot Cohen, does. He's a professor of political science. He served in George W. Bush State Department, and he's the author of The Hollow Crown Shakespeare on how leaders rise, rule, and fall. Elliot Cohen up next. Elliot A. Cohen understands power. He was the dean of the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins. He's currently Arlie A. Burke Chair in Strategy at CSIS, Center for Strategic and International Studies. Those are titles, but he helped craft United States foreign policy, a very influential military thinker. He worked for the U.S. State Department under Condoleezza Rice from 2007 to 2009. And also, the man loves Shakespeare, and he has written a book that married his various interests. It is called The Hollow Crown, Shakespeare on how leaders rise, rule, and fall. And it's rare to get an observer of rulers up this up close and a person who understands Shakespeare this well. So welcome back to The Gist, actually, Mr. Cohen. Well, thanks, Mike. It's uh, great to be back with you. Now, the surpri- it doesn't surprise me that you would be interested in Shakespeare. I know, and I saw him in your cr- credits, Ken Edelson was a huge Shakespeare fan. There are people in your orbit who certainly like Shakespeare. But the particular Shakespeare that sparked your interest in comparing uh, leadership to the s- 17th century works of the Bard was odd to me. It was... Henry VIII, which is, I've not, I've seen a lot of Shakespeare. I've never seen that one. Yeah, well, that's, it, it doesn't get put on all that much, which is a pity. It, uh, for a long time, people weren't sure whether it was really uh, completely Shakespeare's product. I think the consensus is this was a collaboration. But yeah. there was, what, what triggered uh, my interest in doing a book was uh, seeing a production of this at the uh, Folger Theater here in uh, Washington, D.C. And there's a great moment when the, uh, the chancellor, Cardinal Woolsey, is, has suddenly been deposed by Henry VIII. And he gives one of these, these marvelous uh, soliloquies, and if you'll forgive me for just quoting it from a bit, uh, he says, farewell. And this has happened to him very, very suddenly. He didn't expect it at all. Farewell, 
a long farewell to all my greatness. This is the state of man. Today he puts forth the tender leaves of hopes. Tomorrow blossoms and bears his blushing honors thick upon him. The third day comes a frost, a killing frost. And when he thinks good easy man, full surely his greatness is a ripening, nips his root, and then he falls as I do. I have ventured like little wanton boys that swim on bladders this many summers in a sea of glory, but far beyond my depth. My high-blown pride at length broke under me and now has left me, weary and old with service to the mercy of a rude stream that must forever hide me. What's a great soliloquy, but I was listening to it and I said to myself, I know that guy. Uh Uh-huh. And, and um, you know, as I thought about it... and You've I've known gained, many of those guys. <laughs> I've, not, I've known a lot of those guys. And yeah. um, that, that was really the inspiration, that the, you know, the, the kinds of characters that you see in Shakespeare are people who, in some ways, in certain features, resemble the people you see in politics, particularly if you live in Washington. And then, you know, the more I got into it, the more, and particularly as I taught it to my students at in a graduate school of international affairs, the more I realized he had to teach uh, about the kinds of characters who end up in power and what power, what they do with their power and what power Mm -hmm. does to them. And so that's how we ended up with the book. So two things. One, that quote made me realize that floaties have been around for a while if these little wanton (laughs) boys are floating on bladders, which, you know, I looked into it. That's apparently what it was. But two, it is something, there's something romantic about the hubristic character who is laid low and then admits it. It's almost like the Perry Mason villain who, you got me, and here's, or or the Scooby-Doo villain, you know, and I would have gotten away from Uh, with it. And the frustrating thing in what you do is that almost no one ever truly admits the error of their ways. And therefore, if they're powerful enough, you know, it's very hard to learn from history because those people have their adherence and it's always contested what the lesson really is, isn't it? Yeah, no, I agree. You know, what what you described just now, it's what, uh, there's actually a Greek term for it, it, uh, anagnorisis, which is when a character in a play suddenly realizes the truth of their situation, and that it's almost always being wise too late. And I think that's something you know you see pretty often. I agree with you, most powerful people don't always do that, but sometimes they do. I think I, you know, one of, one of the things I try to do in the book is weave in and out contemporary political figures, some historical figures with Shakespeare. And I talk a little bit about one person who sort of did it, not completely, and that was Richard Nixon. If you look at the speech that Nixon gives just as he's about to leave the White House, it's that moment where he, he's warning the people listening to him, don't give way to hatred because you end up destroying yourself. And, and you know, he's, that's, that was his moment of anagnosis where he suddenly realized what had brought him down. Now, Nixon being Nixon, he kind of sealed it back up again. Yeah, the, for the next 15 years, right. he kind of rebutted that but, but, sentiment. But he, yeah. he, he, he had that moment. I, I agree most, most political people don't go through that, but some do. When we and, say Nixon was Shakespearean, which, which is true, I think, I think we're hinting that he had depths. We could also talk about Greek tragedies. So it's sort of a compliment to Nixon as a character. He's more surprising than most presidents. But do you know specifically which Shakespearean character people, uh, even without knowing it, conjure when they say that Nixon's Shakespearean? You know, I, I don't. Um, and of course, I, 
I am a little bit wary of trying to identify any political peop, uh, person too closely with with a Shakespearean figure. I think actually where people make the biggest bigger mistake is with Trump, mm-hmm. where they make him out as Richard the Third, who's really this kind of diabolically evil king, right? Um, or Macbeth, uh, who also turns evil. And I, th- you know, my personal. If you don't mind my doing a little politics, my personal view is that gives Trump way too much credit. You know, yes. Richard III is kind of clever and cunning, and uh, Macbeth is in some ways a tormented, a tormented soul. He does his re- motivations were somewhat pure. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's, <laughs> well, let's not push that. But, all right, all right. But, but but you know, Trump does resemble a minor figure in a play that people usually don't read called Cymbeline. Yeah, he's a figure named Claude. But that's that's another matter. But I well, you also say that when the Shakespeare in the Park did the Julius Caesar as Trump, it was too on the nose, and there were grave inaccuracies with that comparison. Yeah, no, it. I, I and I think pe- when people really try to do that sort of direct comparison, it's a mistake. I mean, in that case, you know, Julius Caesar, who is a very flawed character as as uh, Shakespeare portrays him, you know, he's also, look, he was a, a formidable soldier. He does have certain insights uh, into the people around him. I mean, he he's not Trump. I mean, Trump was not a, you know, gallant soldier, that for sure. Um, I mean, his ego... Yes. You know, the, the, is is there was a kind of a Trumpian ego there? Yes, uh, but but that's vainglorious. Yes. By the way, as someone who had to craft military policy, would the witches from Macbeth been good advisors? Well, you know, the thing about the witches in Macbeth is what they're doing, and and I this is something I think I, I have a chapter on magic um, in the book. I I think what the witches do is they kind of play back. Uh, to Macbeth, his own weaknesses and his mm-hmm. own temptations, and and that's often I think what 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 happens, which is, you know, you're not actually getting advice from these folks. What they're doing is they're, and this is a very common thing in politics, of course. They're amplifying back your own fears, your own, and in Macbeth's case, your own deepest desires and hopes, and and that's how you really get into trouble when you're no longer entirely rational about assessing your situation and instead you're you're listening to either hopes or fears which is what happens to Macbeth. Right. If you have uh, a source, let's call him curveball who comes up with information, you have to th- think about that um with a lot of skepticism. Now in Macbeth the witches didn't lie, but they spoke in these sort of uh, mysteries and it seems to me that a lot of intel is of that ilk as well. Yeah, I, th- I think that's uh, I think that's true. Although, uh, you know, at least in the American system, I actually, you know, I don't think that the intelligence gets particularly tailored to what people want to hear or are afraid of hearing. It gets tailored in a different way, which has to do more with the preoccupations of the uh, of the analysts themselves, mm-hmm. which is a different set of problems. And having right. having worked through uh, some of that, uh, this you know the the witch the equivalent of the witches are probably you know sort of the Steve Bannon types who surround you, uh, and and you know and there are a lot of those people kinds of people in politics who will be telling you what you want to hear or you know reinforcing your fears. So you mentioned uh, poor uh, analogies between Shakespearean characters and leaders. What about, and he wasn't in your book, but I think that, I haven't combed the record, but I wouldn't be surprised if you were to find instances of Boris Johnson 
um, consciously comparing himself to Falstaff. And the belief that you are a Falstaffian figure, I think in Johnson's case, and you probably have met him and know him pretty well, was not, I don't know how accurate you think it is, but I also think it gave him what uh, they might call a permission structure to act in a less than serious way. What do that, you think? That's very interesting. I, I haven't met Boris Johnson, by the way, but um, I think that's a really interesting way of, of putting it. I mean, it's, you know, Falstaff is a comic figure who nonetheless has real insights into reality. I I don't know Johnson well enough to know whether that's... Um, that's really true of him. He is a comic figure, and he uses his his comic abilities. And he, Johnson unquestionably has used his comic abilities, which are quite serious, to get what he wants. I think Johnson tended to think more that he was channeling Churchill. Yes, <laughs> uh, which is you know that's a different thing that people are are uh, are prey to. Although I will give him credit on Ukraine, I think he was actually quite good because I thought I think he thought he was channeling Churchill. Oh, that's interesting, right? He thought he was Churchill, but he really was. Uh, he thought he was Churchill. Thought he was Prince Hal. He thought he was Harry, and uh, Johnson thought he was Churchill, who thought he was Harry. But I'm saying he was really Falstaff. So the, you know, the, the one thing I would say about Falstaff, and you know, I'll let people form their own judgments about Boris Johnson, is he, he's funny. He has a certain kind of practical wisdom. There's no question about that. And we and he's very human, and we we warm to all that. He's not. He is fundamentally an irresponsible person. Yes. And and that's the real, that's the real problem. And that's why when Prince Hal becomes Henry V, he's got to dump him, because Falstaff will always be irresponsible. Yeah. Which is okay. So that's sort of the uh, English electorate in that case. Anyway, moving on. Uh, we talked a second ago about how nice it would be if people on their deathbed or later on would come to realize the error of their ways. By the way, I'll throw, sticking with English politics, Tony Blair did something of a mea culpa tour uh, post the Iraq war. But I also think he held on to you know certain parts of the argument where he gave the impression that he was owning up to his mistakes, but really he was trying to, you know, do the thing that motivated by ego or also the continuation of power where he didn't really totally come clean. What do you think of that? Uh, that's interesting. I think, um, you know, you can never tell what some of these senior political figures really deeply do believe. Um, and of course, uh, and I think one of the things, and again, Shakespeare, I think does show this, in order to be in those positions and wield that kind of power and make the decisions that people make, particularly if they involve lives lost, um, you, you have to develop all kinds of psychological defenses for yourself because otherwise you go mad. Mm-hmm. And and so you tell yourself stories. I mean, I'll go with the Shakespearean figure, King Henry IV, father of Prince Hal, who is a uh, – he's not a particularly attractive human being, but he's smart and he's tough – and he, on his deathbed, he sort of comes to a reconciliation with his, his son. But to the very end, he's telling himself a story about what happened. Now, he had actually ordered the murder of his predecessor, Richard II. But, but, but the story he tells Hal is, greatness and I were compelled to kiss. No, they weren't. You decided to become king. Right. <laughs> and you bumped off your predecessor. And I think that's a very common thing in politics, where you tell yourself, like... I had no. This was. I had no choice. This was thrust upon me, and 
um, you know, uh, and, and it turns that I think frequently turns out not to be the case. Yeah. And also, it just shows how great Shakespeare was in that he either trusted the audience uh, to read through that or didn't care enough, gave the audience, uh, the groundlings, other entertainments so that maybe if that, if the um, uh, questionability of that particular character's statements didn't occur to them, it's fine. To other maybe members of the audience, it would have. But also, I think that uh, in real life, this goes on a lot as well, that since politicians are on a public stage, there's always the effort to credit them with what they're saying as something that they at least believe. And I'm not sure, I think that there is a lag between, well, let's say it this way. I think the unreliable narrator is something that Shakespeare embraces and we all know can be true in literature, but it is so contested in real life that it becomes something else. It becomes something other than an insight into human behavior, and it just becomes a fight about who is lying and who is not. I, I think that's right. Of course, the, you know, the great advantage of the theater and of Shakespeare in particular is you can learn um, in ways that I think in, in, harder, in real life are harder. I think Shakespeare, what part of his genius is he kind of it's not just that you know the characters get taken in we get taken in so that one of the things that's most chilling when people see richard the third again this is the you know the really evil king we get taken in by him mm-hmm. you know when he he breaks the fourth wall as the act as the actors like to say in other words he begins addressing the audience and saying can you imagine i'm getting away with this and you know what we laugh along with him Mm-hmm. Or you know, my one of my other favorite plays, Henry V. This is you know the king who gives a great speech on, before Agincourt. You know, my view of him is he's a real rat. You know, he's, he orders the massacre of the prisoners. He orders the execution of a, you know a close friend of his. He manufactures a pretext for this completely unjust war. You know, he rally, He's a tremendously inspirational leader, but he actually kind of despises the people that he's leading. You could go on and on. And you know what? We all fall for him. Yeah, yeah. And, the- and, and I think there's a great lesson for us. And I think Shakespeare is doing this very deliberately. He's, he's giving us all the information we need. But somehow, you know, unless we think about it and, and kind of interrogate ourselves about it, you know, we, we miss the, the reality of what's going on. And, and, you know, that's great preparation for thinking about politics. Mm -hmm. If you ever feel yourself aroused by the inspirational words of a a leader and then afterwards you need to go back and reflect and say to yourself, is it true that because we shed his blood with him, we became his brother? It seems not. Is it uh, more selfish than not that he told us that gentlemen in England now abed? shall think themselves a curse they were not here, or was it self-serving? I mean, the words were so beautiful. The spectacle was yeah. beautiful. It gave us that feeling, but what's the truth? I don't know how much reflection. I mean, maybe just a, a problem with democracy. We asked our people to reflect and learn from that, and I don't know if that is inherent in the human condition, that people could say, you know what? We were duped. Well, but this is one of the reasons why I think it is so important to teach Shakespeare and, of course, other great works of literature. I mean, part part of what 
people can take away from this is a much greater sophistication in their understanding of what happens on the stage of, of our own politics. And that's why this is, you know, this is not just entertainment, although Shakespeare is endlessly entertaining. It's not just, you know, love of language and literature, although, you know, I certainly have that. And I hope others do as well. Yeah. That my, my point is there's a profound educational opportunity here, which you can get out of Shakespeare. And, you know, I really hope to to see that continue and, and even spread. And that was Elliot Cohen discussing his new book, The Hollow Crown, Shakespeare on how leaders rise, rule, and fall. For Pesca Plus subscribers, we're slathering you with the Pesca Plus content, folks. This great conversation continues. Consider becoming a member of Pesca Plus. It's only $8.99 a month. And as Shakespeare famously said, that's about as much as a venti latte at Starbucks. Subscribe at subscribe dot mikepesca.com And now the spiel. The will of the people has been thwarted once more. First was Derek Chauvin sentenced to imprisonment, not being stabbed. Grave injustice there. Now there's George Santos, whose OnlyFans are lunatics or ironists or the actual workforce of OnlyFans. Santos wore a defiant expression during the expulsion vote, which turns out the Botox didn't work. Representative Byron Donalds of Florida voted to keep the congressman from the North Shore of Long Island in the House. He explained why. I'm upset about it because you're talking about erasing the very fabric of what's made us the greatest nation in the world. That fabric being 70% cotton, 30% polyester, and a quilted jacket from Burberry. Okay, now I have made all the required George Santos misappropriation of funds jokes. The drag queen holocaust dog charity jokes. Those are still out there and will remain so. I want to talk about the expulsion. So Byron Donalds, though dramatically aggrieved, did make some fair points in his defense of Santos. So are we going to not tell every American that if you're accused of something, you get fired on the spot? Is that not going to be the standard in the United States of America? We have, hold on, hold on. We have people who are athletes, they're entertainers, they're pillars of our society. Are, that, are they now going to be fired and removed from their capacity to take care of their families or live their livelihoods because they were accused? If that's going to be the standard in America going forward, I shudder for the future of our country. Okay, Mike, you promised me some fair points. That wasn't them. All right, look, Byron Donalds can't help it. If he has a plausible critique, he'll spin it up and tell the nation, democracy, the future of freedom-loving people everywhere are implicated. And it is weird that the examples of those who are vulnerable to denial of due process, legit concern, are, how does he illustrate it? Athletes and artists. But Donalds is saying that even a scathing ethics committee report is not a criminal conviction. And he also points out that only five other members of the House have ever been expelled, and they were all either criminally convicted or members of the Confederacy, and not like, in Santos' case, of dunces. No, the literal Confederacy. Also quite a few dunces. But as a counterpoint, I will quote from the chair of the Ethics Committee, Michael Guest, who answered Donaldson's central contention that this would be an unprecedented expulsion. Other members who have had similar behavior have resigned. Uh, this would be somewhat unprecedented in that he would have been the only member who refused to resign in the face of overwhelming evidence uh, and forced the House to have the vote on expulsion. 
I'm not unprecedented, Santos is. And that's a pretty good point. It's like when newscasters would intone over and over that the conviction of Donald Trump would be unprecedented. And that was factually true. But when Republicans said they didn't want to do it because it was unprecedented, I always thought, yeah, but it's only unprecedented because Nixon resigned. If Nixon had been convicted, as he would have, would that provide somehow a stronger rationale for Donald Trump 45 years later being found guilty of his high crimes and misdemeanors? So an expulsion, like an impeachment conviction, is somewhat unprecedented. But you can't say it totally breaks from all precedent. It's very much like a very similar set of circumstances, which actually had the same result, corrupt congressman in the Congress, then wasn't, but this result was just achieved by a more contentious means in an expulsion vote. Nixon, unlike Santos, had shame. The other members who resigned had shame. They probably also had the means, unlike Santos, to make more than $11 a year, I say, as if I'm unaware of the existence of Celebrity Big Brother, Dancing with the Stars, The Biggest Loser, Newsmax. The difference, actually, thinking about it, is probably not the personal relationship between those expelled former members and shame. I think it's more that they were all operating during a time when shame was more of a commodity in society, for good and ill. George Santos was a shameless grifter propelled forward by the jet stream of shamelessness that has come to characterize our society. Now, to be fair, to be clear, not rushing to judgment, that's a good thing. Respecting the will of the voters, that's also a good thing. It's a virtue to be upheld. But not doing something unprecedented just because it's unprecedented, that by itself is not a virtue. That is rigidity about a procedure. There are obviously some good reasons to set a precedent. Was this one? Now, maybe you heard me talking during the last vote. When was that? A month or so ago? I said, no, I didn't think so. But new information like this ethics report requires new contemplation. If I were an actual member of Congress, I do think I would vote to expel. The politics of it, the common sense of it, the willingness to confront your voters in the next election, it's all too overwhelming. But if I were a floating head philosopher king, I'd have a harder time. I'd probably still do it. And one reason is, as my floating philosopher head king example would contemplate, would be this following and last aspect of the Santos tenure. I do worry about thwarting the will of the voters. But what is the will of the voters if they don't know anything about the congressman they're being asked to vote for? In politics, there is this phenomenon of the low information voter. You've heard this phrase, and we generally decry the low information voter, but then we say, ah, what can you do? They liked the cut of Obama's jib and Obama won. Or, conversely, they thought Trump would be a good guy to have a beer with, or they found Hillary too shrill, or whatever it is. But, you know, sometimes they get it right. Like, they probably thought that Herschel Walker just kind of sounded generally stupid when he talked. And you know what? He does, and that is a legit conclusion. But it's It's something that we're told not to like, even if it exists. We wish more voters weren't low information voters. If low information voters were the only voters there were, we'd have to seriously reconsider aspects of our democracy. But think about the election of George Santos. No one knew the truth about this guy beforehand. 
He got the nomination, you know, took advantage of an anti-incumbent sentiment and the power of political parties. But after that, he got no coverage that scratched the surface of what anyone needed to know. Not the New York Times, not Newsday, not New York One, the cable network that usually does a very good job at local politics. There was a local newspaper run by political operatives who were disinclined to like Santos, who pursued and published a fraction of Santos's malfeasance. They actually more accurately raised legitimate questions about it, but that was it. It went ignored. That's the greater shame than George Santos or anyone who cast an expulsion vote in either direction today. There literally wasn't one voter who voted for George Santos who knew the first relevant thing about George Santos. Well, maybe there was one, and that would be George Santos. And who the hell is that guy when you get down to it? That's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. and thanks for listening. Under Clause 5D of Rule 20, the chair announces to the House that in light of the expulsion of the gentleman from New York, Mr. Santos, the whole number of the House is now 434.